0: just go to cars.com. It's magical. Perfect. What's good, everyone? Welcome to the Bucks Film Room Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sampson, and you can follow me on Twitter at Buck's Film Room. It appears the demise of the Milwaukee Bucks was greatly exaggerated as they whooped the Boston Celtics and won game two to even the series. It's now 1-1 heading back to Boston for a Friday night showdown. The Bucks were tied at the Warriors this season with the best road record in the regular season at 27 and 14. Meanwhile, Boston was 28 and 13 on their home court, so it should be a good one, and it'll really be a deciding factor. I had made a prediction in our Brew Hoop chat on Twitter a couple hours before the game on Tuesday night, and said, you know, after this game, I really think we're going to be talking about if the Bucks can just split these next two games at Boston, they'll really be back in the driver's seat for this series, and that's exactly what happened. Milwaukee really took care of business. They had a nice comeback from their the worst loss of their season. The 22-point loss in Game 1 was their biggest deficit of the season, the biggest loss of the season, and they really rebounded nicely. We're basically up 30 points in that fourth quarter, and so I'm going to call it a 30-point win even though the final margin was not that big. It was basically a 30-point win by the time the starters were all pulled and everything was said and done. Milwaukee really just dropped the hammer in the third quarter, and and that's two straight games now where we've seen the third quarter be decisive. In game one, Milwaukee was, was right there with Boston, and Boston went on that run. And in game two, the Bucs went on that run. So that third quarter has been pivotal in each of these games. So definitely make sure to pay attention to that third quarter on Friday night. That's one thing where we should be on the edge of our seats and really just to try to figure out that could be the swaying quarter of the game. So... That's kind of your homework is on Friday night, get ready for that third quarter. It'll probably be close. We'll see what the score looks like at the end of the third quarter, as well as going into the beginning. So I wanted to talk about a couple of things and I think the first thing that we can just jump right into is the physicality. The physicality in this series has been off the charts. We all know that Giannis brings it. He brings it every single night. Sometimes people don't like how physical he is, but he does not shy away from contact. And that might be the most underrated thing I say all season long in this podcast, Giannis loves the—he loves that contact. He searches it out for anyone who says that basketball is not a contact sport. Tell them to watch Giannis, and they will completely change their minds. He usually initiates the contact, in mostly in a legal way. I know some. Fans of opposing teams get mad at him for using his elbows or bludgeoning. I've heard seen some people say bludgeoning people out of his way, but for the most part it's clean contact. It's within the rules. He's not doing anything dirty, but he just loves that contact and Boston has matched that and even taken it up another level in this series. They have risen to the challenge. They knew that this was going to be a physical series. There's an article dropped in Yahoo Sports talking about the physicality and Marcus Morris said that he lifted a little bit more in the weight room in the week leading up to this because he knew the game plan going in. So it's been guys like Marcus Morris, Aaron Baines, and Al Horford. They have been the three players mostly tasked with defending Giannis and Those three guys, they've initiated a lot of the contact at times, and they've been very physical with Giannis. And so I just want to run through my little, what I've seen so far, but then I want us to be able to kind of accept it for what it is and move on. So Boston, really, they're the ones that aren't backing away. I appreciate them. They're not flopping. I don't think Giannis has taken, drawn a charge or picked up a charge Charge at all in this series. So, Boston, they're rising to the challenge. They're initiating that contact. They're being extremely physical, which has made life difficult for Giannis. We saw that in game one. We saw that in the second quarter of game two as well, when Giannis started out the game 0 for 3, but had, was 5 for 8 from the free throw line. So, a couple of things have made this possible, and it mostly starts with Al Horford on the defensive end. Horford is a very good defender. He's But what makes him so difficult for Giannis is Horford has good quickness and good lateral movement. Good lateral agility for somebody his size. So he has that lateral ability and that quickness, but then he's also big and strong. But he's also a little bit undersized as far as height, not weight, but height for a center. So that gives him certain advantages when it comes to an official's eyes. So, but Horford is a very good defender. He's very agile. He's very strong. And he has a reputation as a clean defender and a reputation that precedes him, It comes into the arena before he does, it comes into the game. And so, That is very helpful for Horford. And then Giannis, he's a rare superstar because he never flops. When contact is made, he doesn't flail. He doesn't whip his head back. He fights through it. Yes, he screams, but that's after fighting through this contact. So if Giannis feels somebody pushing on him, he's going to push back even harder. And that gives the defense more leeway because because Horford has that is a good defender and has a clean reputation and because Giannis is a superstar who's not going to flop that then allows Yet Horford to use his forearms at that waist level, like we've been seeing, and really kind of push on Giannis and help shove him gently, guide him out of the lane, and help ensure that he can't get to his spots. So, a lot of times when that contact is happening at waist level, it's hard for officials to see. There's a lot going on there, it's not as obvious as stuff up high. So, when Horford's able to push on him at waist level, and Giannis isn't flopping or falling to the floor, and he's fighting through it, it just looks in a, like if a normal human being, if Horford was were to push a normal human being, that person would go flying. But Giannis is not normal, so he's able to absorb that contact, try to fight through it, but it still affects his ability to get to the rim, like we've seen in this series. So that's really been a a major factor when people talk about Horford defending Giannis. It's that leeway that he's been given by the officials to do that. And this may seem like somewhat complaining, but what I want to say is. It is what it is. I'm I'm just as guilty as the next person about complaining in game one and game two, but I'm grateful that the officials have at least been consistent. They've now been consistent about this for two games, and that's as a player, that's the most we can ask for is officials are consistent you know what they're going to call you know what they're not going to call so now Giannis and the Bucks can go into game three knowing that bar has already been set and knowing how to adjust so if they're going to allow that physical contact and defense it's only natural that they'll hopefully allow that pushing right back on offense so Giannis can use his off arm just as Horford is he can use that arm to create that space that Horford is taking away and so I just wanted to put that out there it is what it is at this point. We got to accept it. Accepted. It's going to be a series long thing. As long as it's consistent, that's the most that players can ask for. It's the most we can ask for. We know how it's going to be called. So now it's just up to the Bucks. It's up to Giannis to adjust to it and we'll see how they go. They they played a little bit better with that fact on Tuesday night and hopefully they take another step on Friday night. So the, in, the Celtics have been loading up that the paint to stop Giannis. It's a the complete opposite uh, scheme that they or game plan that they had in last year's playoffs last year when the Bucks saw them they were like yeah Giannis you get what you got to get you can't beat us on your own we're going to take away everything else all your other teammates so you get what you got to get we'll take away your teammates and see what happens and it worked out in Boston's favor but this year they're not doing that they're not just letting Giannis get what he wants. And a lot of that has to do with Horford and that physicality like we talked about. But Horford isn't doing this on his own. He has guys always sliding over into the driving driving lanes. Watch. Anytime Giannis catches it, Horford's got his arms out. And then there's almost always a defender with his arms out. And his that help defender his hands are almost always touching Horford's hands. There's probably maybe six inches to a foot gap in between there. And that's taking away those driving lanes Giannis normally has. So it's really a team effort with Boston packing the paint. Milwaukee has not scored nearly as many points in the paint as they're used to. And that's been Boston's primary goal. Just like Milwaukee on defense, don't allow points at at the paint at the rim. That's been Boston's goal in this series so far as well. And, so if that's gonna happen, well first of all the back up. Boston is doing that because of how good Giannis is. They didn't have to do that a year ago. Giannis was not nearly this good a year ago, even though he was still a very good player. So it just speaks to the growth that Giannis has taken in in the past year and how he's taken his game from an all-star starter level to an MVP candidate and hopefully the MVP if everything worked out accordingly. So he's taken huge steps and he's grown enormously in this past calendar year. So if this is going to happen, if Boston is going to continue to build this wall, so to speak, then Giannis has to take what's given to him and make def- and make Boston pay for that. He has good shooters around him. He's got guys like Mirtich, Middleton, who lit it up, Brook Lopez, you know, George Hill can knock it down. He's got a bunch of guys around him that can come in and make defenses pay. So instead of always forcing the issue, like sometimes we've seen, he's just got to take what the defense gives him, start out, this is just my humble opinion, start out making some easy passes, some kickouts, reading when that help defender is overplaying because the Bucs can get open looks on the perimeter. They can get these open looks and they have enough shooters to make Boston pay. So that, that's what I feel Giannis just needs to make a slight adjustment to. He only has six assists combined in this series, and he really needs to work on just taking what the defense gives him. Giannis had two assists in game one and then doubled that for four assists in game two. And so I think that's a huge adjustment that hopefully we see Giannis making is hopefully he can pick up eight, nine assists in this next game as well as get his 30-some points so I think that will be a big key and we'll see how that goes. Giannis definitely improved his reads, but there's still more improvement that he can take in, in understanding. And this is one thing where Giannis has come so far at in the past year is understanding how to manipulate the defense. He understands how to t- take a dribble to the right in order to get the whole defense sliding over to the right. But the whole time Giannis's intentions have been to whip a pass to a shooter in the, cor- in the left-hand corner. And so we've seen that all season long. That's been one of the biggest steps Giannis has taken as a playmaker for his team. And now he needs to bring that out and show that in... In these playoffs too and take that to another level. That's huge if he can find guys on the perimeter who can knock down those shots or even just to get the defense to scramble because if a Celtics defender drops into the paint to help on a Giannis drive, Giannis whips it out, then another Celtics help defender is going to have to slide over to take his spot and then if you can rotate the ball you can get some easier dribble penetration because Boston will be out of sorts and won't have those tight rotations like they typically do in a set half court defense and so that can just trigger a lot of different things Milwaukee took 39 threes in game one and then 47 threes in game two so they really need to continue to hoist the threes they need to really just take those shots don't be shy I know sometimes it can be difficult when as a player we we miss the first two or three shots you start to feel bad you start to feel guilty about launching those but Milwaukee needs to be have no conscious just go unconscious start dropping the tray ball, start shooting it like they did in Game 2, and everything will work out just just fine for the Bucks. I'm confident that if they can continue to do that, they will be just fine in this series. Well, let's just take a quick pause for this commercial break. This is Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down... Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void there Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. All right, so the next thing I want to talk about is the adjustment, the major adjustment that Milwaukee made in Game 2. I know leading up to the game, there's all this talk from head coach Mike Budenholzer, from... The players that Milwaukee wasn't going to make any adjustments. I think Budenholzer even said, adjustments are overrated sometimes. You just have to play better. And so some fans were freaking out that Budenholzer has this long history of not making adjustments dating back to his time as the coach of the Atlanta Hawks. They were saying the series is over, Celtics in six, Budenholzer can't do this. He should have been preparing for this all season long, blah, blah, blah. And I think that we just have to relax as fans. I like the passion. I, I like that fans want the best for the teams. That's what's great about this fan base is we always want what's best. And we always, we have high hopes despite the poor history. But at the same time, Budenholzer hasn't given us any reason to doubt him all season long. If we're looking at the past, heading into game two, if we're looking at the past 87 games of work, the only 87 games that we know of Mike Budenhoser in this version of the Milwaukee Bucks team, they have never given us any reason to doubt them. They won 60 games in the regular season. They locked up the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. They were the number one seed in the entire NBA. They were the best regular season team in the entire NBA. They won their first four playoff games. Granted, it was against the Detroit Pistons. Still, they took care of business like they needed to. Budenholzer has not given us a reason to doubt him all season long, and so I tend to to be a little bit lax on that then. I I will give him the benefit of the doubt until I have a reason not to, until I shouldn't be trusting him. And Boone showed us in game two that we should trust him. He he is a lot more sly than I think anybody gave him credit for. Everybody thought he was really this straightforward guy, but he's shown us signs of this throughout the regular season of being this really kind of like foxy coach. Like he's got a game plan. He's working something up. I mean, in the regular season, he said that he doesn't watch film on opposing teams which is baloney he watches film you know he watches film he said other things and so this was him just playing the game and it appeared to catch boston off guard because milwaukee started out the game and they they were running a switching defense huh! they made this huge adjustment going from their drop coverage in the pick and roll and now they ran a switching defense, and that's exactly what people were calling for, and it worked. The people were smart. They knew what they wanted, and it worked. Boston shot just under 40% from the field in game two, and that was after shooting 54% in game one. So Milwaukee, they switched one through four. Um, Basically, they switched everybody besides Brooke Lopez. They still kept Lopez. As that primary defender, typically on Al Horford when they were sharing the floor together, sometimes on Aaron Baines, but Lopez was basically the only player who didn't switch. Otherwise, Ursan switched a little bit. He he took a he took a charge on Hayward after switching on uh, after a ball screen from George or that George Hill was guarding him, and Mirtich switched a little bit and did okay. Um, It was clear at the beginning of the game. Boston was targeting Miritich. Miritich was inserted into the starting lineup as another adjustment and or injury replacement for Sterling Brown, who's a little banged up, had back spasms in game one. But Boston targeted Miritich to begin the game and it sort of worked out. Miritich picked up two dumb fouls on his part. But overall, the switching defense was effective and it's hard to explain over the airwaves, right? You can't see what I'm talking about necessarily. So... I had made a video on Tuesday, right after well, mon- Tuesday night. Yep, right after the game, and I broke down exactly how the Bucks implemented the switching defense, and I really went into nice detail. I think about what did it what does it look like, who switched, what were the outcomes, and so you can check that video out. There's an article on Brewhoop.com that you can check it out and. Or you can also go to my YouTube channel and find it there. Uh, it's just search Bucks Film Room on YouTube, and you can find it there. A YouTube channel where I put down, put out breakdowns and different things like that. Just search Bucks Film Room. Should be that first video, something called like Milwaukee Bucks switching it up on defense. You know, something really kind of sassy like that. So you can check that out. But it really was a huge adjustment, and. Boston wasn't completely prepared. I don't think it caught them by surprise, but it just changed things up. It put Bucks in a better defensive position. One thing they'll still have to address, which another change might be coming, I'm not sure, is the pick and pop with Al Horford. Because Lopez didn't switch, this he was still vulnerable to that in game 2, and that was a huge, you know, that'll be huge moving forward. Moving forward. moving forward because Horford has had a couple of nice games here and it's really been you know a challenge for the Bucks to figure that out because they don't want to pull Brooke Lopez away from the hoop they don't want to get him out in the perimeter guarding Kyrie Irving or Jason Tatum he's he's done fine in those areas and we might see that at some point But overall, I think that they want to keep him close to the rim. And Horford was 3 for 5. He ended up with 15 points. And so nothing major, nothing huge. I think that it's livable. It's definitely not a a backbreaker. But if Horford ups his 3 points and goes 6 for 10, then you might be talking about something different. So anyway, you can check out that video on Bucks Film Room. And let me know your thoughts. Or you can check that out on on an article or in an article on brewhoop.com as well. All right, let's move on to the rotation. I just have two things left to talk about, the rotation being the second to the last one. So the rotation that Budenholzer has implemented has been somewhat questionable. Uh, He's been fairly flexible, maybe is the word with his rotation all year. And what I mean by that is we've seen different players be given different opportunities. We've seen Sterling Brown come in in and out. We've seen Dante DiVincenzo when he was healthy come in and out. Pat Conanton has been in and out. Uh DJ Wilson mostly in because of injuries, not really any other reason. But guys have been really kind of coming in and out. And the Deepness of the Bucks team, the depth of their team, has really been a strength all season long. It's allowed Boonhauser to keep players like Giannis and Chris Middleton healthy. It's allowed him to, you know, really limit the overall minutes that his starters had played and keep them fresh going into this year, going into this postseason. Um, however, he's been somewhat reluctant to shorten his rotation. Maybe he. I mean, it's hard because we haven't really seen a game that's needed to go the full length. The Bucks got blown out in game one. They were blowing out the Celtics in game two. So we haven't really seen <clears throat> what his rotation would look like if it was a full length game. But so far, he's been playing nine guys for the most part. And so we'll really see how this works going forward and how everything... Plays out. One thing that I want to talk about as far as the rotation is DJ Wilson and Pat Connaughton. So let's just start with DJ Wilson. So some have been calling for him to be the solution to this pick and pop that we were just talking about with Lopez. Wilson can switch on to Irving and give him some troubles. Irving is an elite player in this league, so it's not like he'll be able to completely blank him out, but Wilson is a lot more agile. He has great agility, uh lateral quickness. He has length to kind of make up for if he gets beat a little bit. And so that's been the defensive adjustment that some have been calling for. And yeah, well I guess before I go into this, just a quick disclaimer. I'm not as high on DJ Wilson as some or a lot of people appear to be however i'm not low on him either i don't think that he's a scrub i think that i'm just neutral i have only seen like a really a 2 month maybe maybe three-month sample of him playing somewhat well and I'm just not ready to jump on to the DJ Wilson is the savior bandwagon yet I just want to see a little bit more I think that he has a lot of potential he does have very good defensive versatility and I agree with that 100% his switchability is one of his main strengths he can really move his feet make life difficult he may not be the strongest post player, but he has enough enough length to make up for that as well. So I agree with that 100% that he is, he, when it comes to switching, he's ideal player and it's awesome that he's developed into this playable guy after like... We were questioning coming into the season if he was even a draft pick. We were questioning why the Bucks even picked up his third year option at the beginning of this season. So there are those questions that were going around. So I'm glad that he's come into this player. But I see, and I tweeted this out, I, I see that DJ Wilson has what I call backup quarterback syndrome. So what backup quarterback syndrome is, is it's when you have this quarterback who this starting quarterback who is flawed and they aren't they aren't a sexy player. They aren't spectacular. They don't make great plays. The team kind of somewhat struggles with him at the helm. Maybe goes like six and ten, seven and nine, eight and eight, something like that. And the, the starting quarterback isn't that great. But then you have this backup quarterback that really did well in the preseason or in limited action in the NFL regular season has done well there too. And so then fans are like, oh, this backup quarterback, he's the best, he's the savior. We need him. He should start. When in reality it's small sample sizes, and that quarterback has flaws that would be exposed if they were to see any more time than they already have, and the team would in most cases, would be worse off overall if this player was playing major minutes or was playing, if this backup quarterback was the starter, the team would be worse off overall. And so I kind of attribute that to DJ Wilson. So I say DJ Wilson has backup quarterback syndrome. We've seen him play enough here in the regular season to give us that glimpse and for us to know that maybe he can do this. Maybe he can be that rotational player. But we don't want to scrap Brooke Lopez, who is the first player in NBA history to record the amount of blocks and three pointers made that he did this season. So you don't want to just scrap that and throw that all to the wayside. I talked about Wilson's vers- defensive versatility, but offensively, the Bucks' offense would be considerably worse with him on the floor and without Ursan or Miritich or Lopez. Wilson shot in the 14th percentile among bigs at the rim. He was 16th percentile amongst bigs in effective field goal percentage, 4th percentile among, in the 4th percentile among free throw percentage amongst bigs, and this is all according to cleaning the glass. He showed that he can hit the deep ball somewhat and somewhat stretch the floor. I think he hit about 36% of his threes, but that's a small sample size, and a lot of it was really derived from a hot couple of months to start the season. He cooled off, I think, like in February, sort of somewhat rebounded in March and April. But overall, like, I just feel like we haven't seen enough of him. And I'm just worried about the Bucks' offense. Like, we're already worried about the spacing. And then now you want to throw in the, probably one of their worst offensive players in the rotation. Maybe Pat Connaughton is a little worse, but other than that, Wilson's at the bottom. He's definitely at the bottom rung amongst their big men rotation as far as offensive players go. So that's just a worry that I have and a worry that that I'm just not sure how it will work out. And so we'll just see how that goes moving forward and if he's able to work his way into the rotation. The second rotation question that I have is about Pat Connaughton. Connaughton was very up and down. He struggled with his three-point shot for most of the regular season and then the last month or so he found it. He played a lot more minutes because of that and he really had a nice rebound over the last month. However, he had an awful game one. He was two for ten, shot one for seven from downtown. He is not the best defensive player and he was matched up with Gordon Hayward who's six 6'8 and was able to use his body and his size and and regardless, Connaughton doesn't have that lateral quickness, so Hayward went by him a couple times. Just questions about Connaughton on defense. So he had this very questionable game one. People were wondering out loud, a lot of people, everyone, I was, why is he playing so many minutes in this Bucks team? That's not normally a guy that you can count on if you want to be a championship-caliber team. What happens in game two? Miritich picks up two quick follow, f- fouls. Pat Connaughton, first guy off the bench, and... I think that was Budenholzer kind of trying to show him that you know I have your back. I I'm I'm supporting you and and Budenholzer was rewarded with that faith and Kantin had a fairly decent game. Made a lot of hustle plays. He only had 5 points, but he just was kind of around. He struggled a little bit on defense, but he's always going to do that. We know what he is on defense. We're not expecting a lot out of him, but he kind of rewarded him. We'll see how this goes when Brogdon returns, which is the last thing I want to talk about is Brogden's return. Because if Brogdon's back, Connaughton necessarily won't have a spot in that rotation. I think it was more out of need. Sterling Brown is battling that back injury. Otherwise, I feel like he could have been the first one off the bench. Tony Snell, we haven't really seen him in these playoffs since he came back from his ankle injury. So I don't know if the Bucks have confidence in him just to jump right in there. So Moving on to the last thing about Brogdon's return. Hopefully, Malcolm will be back on Friday, and what a huge boost in the arm that will be. That will be a series changer for Milwaukee if Brogdon can be anything close to what he was in the regular season. Brogdon, he was 50% from the field, 40% from the three-point line, 90% from the free-throw line, so I think that that will be... Just a huge, huge get for Milwaukee. That's like making a mid-season trade and then you get to throw him right in here. It'll change everything. It gives Milwaukee another outside shooter, a deadly outside shooter who, if given that space, can knock him down with consistency. If when Boston's in that scramble mode or if Milwaukee needs somebody besides Giannis, besides Middleton to make a play, and if is struggling, there you go. You got Brogdon who showed an in an improved driving ability in the regular season. And he was really good at getting to the hoop with those open spaces. So it really gives the Bucks another player that they can rely on. And, and if he comes into the starting five, it ensures that that the Celtics can't hide Kyrie Irving on anyone. They like to put Kyrie on the opposing team's weakest offensive player. Um, and who are they going to do that on? If they put him on Brogdon, Brogdon can expose him as well. So it just gives the Bucks so many advantages. I hope he comes back. He's been doing more and more in practice. Boonhoser wanted to see more of him in five-on-five five action before clearing him. We'll see a what kind of shape he's in, what rust he has to shake off, uh, what his shot looks like. We'll see. We'll get a better picture of all that stuff if he makes his appearance. But I think that would just be a huge boost for for the bucks it's just another player arguably he's kind of in that conversation right with the rest of the starting five or at least with Middleton and, Lo- and Bledsoe as the question about if he was the bucks second best or second most important player in the regular season so that'll be huge for Milwaukee to get him back and we'll see if it actually happens on Friday night well that's all i have for today bucks fans appreciate you tuning in and you can catch the bucks film room podcast Every Thursday, so check in again next week. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at Bucks Film Room. I'll catch you next time.